Mortimer, Episode 8. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. U.S. police officers are too busy defending our fair city of Georgetown to make announcements about radio serials. Oh, wait. This microphone is on. Well, uh, well, there you go. Uh, good enough. He clenched the stack of envelopes in his sweaty palm as he huffed and puffed his way down the cobblestone city street. A trickle of sweat dripped down from his scalp all the way to his buttocks, his heart galloping with anticipation. Bowler tucked low, he took a turn off the road and padded across the grass toward the grove of trees, avoiding the front gate where guards stood in cobalt blue regalia. The sun sparkled golden in the crystal blue sky. Just a few white marshmallow clouds dotted the horizon, completing the lazy and innocent Sunday morning ambience. A high seven-foot stone fence marked the border of the Iscariot property. Rumour had it that Mr. Iscariot had shipped each stone to Georgetown from the coast of Bermuda, dragged them across town up to the hill, and used them to build the wall to decorate the overindulgent Iscariot domicile. He stopped and surveyed the stones, looking for a foothold. He was getting too old for this nonsense. But giving up was absolutely out of the question. He'd been paid a pretty sum of money, not to mention his own entrepreneurial endeavours. His fortunes had climbed thanks to his wit, and he was going to climb that wall, whether his tired old body liked it or not. Sliding his foot onto a glistening bit of stone, he put the stack of envelopes between his teeth and pulled himself up. He poked his head over the top of the wall. Across the green lawn, he spied a landscaper busy in the tulip bed by the front walkway. On the flagstone patio on the back end of the house, the young housemaid watered the herb garden. Grunting in annoyance, he allowed himself to drop down from the wall. There was no way he'd be able to make it to the apple trees at the back of the property unseen if she was out the back yard. Why wasn't she in the house dusting something? He paced the wall like a caged animal, his thoughts racing through the events that had transpired over the past two years. He had been a lucky bloke. His pockets had been substantially padded, and his financial future was secure. No one in Georgetown actually knew how much he was worth. That would cause suspicion. So he'd opened bank accounts in several different cities, spreading his money out, making small but frequent purchases so that no one would notice. Eventually... He had transformed from being a fairly average man of wealth into one of the richest gentlemen in the South. With determination, he stalked back to the wall and climbed up again. The maid was gone. Without hesitation, he hoisted himself up and flopped his belly onto the top of the wall. After a breath, 
He flipped over the wall and landed in the shrubs on the other side. He inspected his trousers and was rather pleased that besides the dirt, there was no other evidence that he'd been engaging in any out-of-the-norm behavior. Looking back and forth first, he scurried along the wall and toward the grove of trees. As he neared the designated place, his pulse quickened. He'd made this trip only a handful of times, once in the dark, which had made it impossible to actually see what he was doing. Otherwise, he'd selected times when he knew the family would be gone. Trips like these gave him a thrill. He'd never lived on the dark side of the law before, and his employment made him feel young and alive again. He didn't consider himself a felon, however. He was an opportunist. What he had done was hardly something to get bent out of shape about, considering the financial kickback could buy him a yacht and a new identity if need be. He found the designated tree and set the envelopes down. Now he just had to dispose of the evidence. Pushing aside the carefully positioned layer of bush, he dug into the fresh dirt. Mortimer dragged his flabby tongue across the piece of paper to ensure a perfect crease before placing it securely into the envelope. He had been locked away in his quarters after an unsavory thread of events from the day had left his mind, body, and soul beaten, bruised, and abused. With derision, he placed the letter into his jacket pocket and turned away from his desk. His hope was that the fanatical fascism that had resulted in his incarceration would be quite effectively detonated as a result of his inarguable rebuttal. The Boat Bottle Fan Club would undoubtedly respond with unassailable umbrage, most assuredly launching swift and mighty justice against the judicial system of Georgetown. It was at that moment that the bell downstairs resounded throughout the mansion. Mortimer had been staring thoughtfully at the wall, captivated by his perspicacious musings, and now, after being quite rudely interrupted, he snapped to attention. Without hesitation, he lumbered toward the massive windows on the opposite end of the room, careful to step around the mounds of treasure that covered the wooden floors of his study. He launched his frame like a beached whale over his four-poster bed, and once he had righted himself again, he swiftly pulled the glass panes open and peered down. He had selected his room for this particular purpose. Not only was it conveniently positioned above the front door, allowing him the perfect vantage for spying on intruders to his otherwise peaceful sanctuary, but its location at the forefront of the mansion guaranteed him positional leverage in forcing unwanted guests into states of capitulation. Neville opened the door to the house below. Miss Longhorn, how do you do? Oh, hello, Neville. I was just so worried about Mortimer. I, I wanted to see if he was all right, came Lily Lou's voice from below. Mortimer leaned farther out of the window, gravity dragging saliva from the edges of his jowls. He slurped. Uh, he went immediately upstairs upon arriving home, Neville answered. I can tell him that you stopped by. Then there was a scuffle and Mrs. Dixon appeared on the stoop. Miss Langhorn, dear, we are ever so grateful for you coming by earlier today. The spit gathered between Mortimer's teeth had quite impressively multiplied, and he let a little drip out of his mouth before he sucked it back up. Splendid. He opened his lips and let the spit droop down just a little bit farther. It was no trouble at all, I assure you. He was quite mistreated. Herbert and I witnessed the whole thing. Mortimer slurped the spit back into his gaping maw. It was cold on his tongue. He sloshed it around his mouth, quite enjoying himself. Do come in. I'm sure Mortimer will be delighted to learn that you stopped by. 
Mrs. Dixon reached out. Mortimer pursed his lips and relaxed his tongue. The spit went down further and further, until, at the very last second, and as Lily Lou started to move into the house, Mortimer slurped. But he was not fast enough, and he watched as a massive ball of spit careened down toward Lily Lou's hat. He did not stick around to see what happened next. He pulled himself back into his bedroom and quickly shut the windows. Downstairs, he heard the door close. He looked to the left and to the right, and then crouched down. It was uncommonly warm outside, and Millie had been given the most loathsome assignment available to a housemaid. She groaned to herself and plucked another weed from the meticulous lawn, throwing it into the growing pile in the wicker basket that was by her side. The front door to the mansion had just closed behind the Lilou, who'd returned for the second time that day. It was absolutely puzzling to Millie that the lovely Lily Lou had been so effectively captivated by Mortimer. As far as Millie was concerned, Lily Lou was one of the most beautiful ladies in town, not to mention rich. As the heiress of the Longhorn fortune, it was impossible to imagine she had any difficulty attracting suitors, and it certainly didn't seem like Mortimer was putting forward any effort at all. Millie, on the other hand, was not in the least interested in boys, or money for that matter. Her life was fine just the way it was. In her fifteen years, she'd wised up to the ways of the world, and knew that boys were only interested in two things, money and horses, neither of which suited Millie's fancy. What good was money, anyway? It couldn't buy immortality, and it couldn't make you fly, and it definitely couldn't make you any happier. She knew the latter for a fact, having lived with the Iscariots for the past five years. As Mr. Iscariot's fortune grew, his happiness wavered. Millie didn't tell anyone, of course, but her keen eyes didn't miss the increased frequency in which the master of the house had imbibed himself into lunacy. Not to mention Mortimer, who found joy in the treasure gathered from the most unexpected places— Cigarette packages could be cut into flags, rags, or made into exotic ship sails. Even toothpicks could be fashioned into a bow, or pillar, or other such things. Master Mortimer had always managed to work all of his wayward treasures into the detailing of the lovely creations he crafted in the privacy of his quarters. Mortimer had no use for money, and hadn't demonstrated any sort of satisfaction at the Iscariot's enterprise's successes. Of course, there was the lady of the house, who constantly talked about some chap named Eugene, wandered the halls happy as a clam, but as confused as a dodo bird who had run head first into a wall. Their money had also made the Iscariot family a target. Mrs. Dixon, Mrs. Peabody, and Neville had tried to hide it from her, but Millie knew about the letters. She was not proud of eavesdropping, but after the scene with the dining-room table— Millie had been so overcome with curiosity that she'd listened at the kitchen door while her superiors discussed the issues in private. Millie was yet to learn all the details, but from the small snippets of conversation she had heard, there was a man writing letters demanding money or else he would ruin the family and maybe hurt someone. Millie suspected the letter writer to be the same person who'd blown up her late master, but she dared not share that with anyone else, because then they'd know she'd been listening in on conversations that were none of her business. So that was out of the question. Millie cringed, remembering that Mrs. Dixon had some quite unpleasant tactics for modifying behavior in unruly youth. So Millie would keep her theories to herself. 
and by the by, the Iscariot's fortune would all be given away to a petty criminal. Milly shook her head sadly. No, the Iscariots weren't any better off being rich than they would have been if they were poor. Millie pulled another weed and then took a moment to roll her shoulders and stretch her neck. Suddenly something caught her eye. Her head jerked to the right and she gasped at what she saw. Dangling from the window at the front of the house was what appeared to be a ginormous buffalo. Millie rubbed her eyes and looked again, watching in bemusement as it wriggled and writhed. Did buffalo wriggle and writhe? Shortly thereafter, the realization hit her like a ton of bricks. Stunned by the sight, she was not sure if she should laugh or be horrified. It was the master of the house, Mortimer himself, and he was climbing out of his bedroom window. Abandoning her basket of weeds, Millie jumped up and ran across the massive lawn toward the house. Master Mortimer, what are you doing? She craned her neck and looked up at him. He was climbing down what appeared to be a makeshift ladder. It was crafted out of fabric that was tied into knots, its length extending from the second-story window all the way to the ground. Great Jonah Barberis! Mortimer nearly lost his tenuous grasp on the fabric. I'm being assaulted! No, Mortimer, it's just me, Millie. Mortimer peered down at her as the rope swayed back and forth, his moustache angled downward in an expression of scepticism. If you would be so kind. Forgive me, sir, but if you're trying to escape, you might want to lower your voice. Ridiculous! Mortimer cried, but a bit more softly this time. Millie took a step back from where Mortimer swung. There was much she would do for the family, almost anything really, but being crushed to death by her plummeting squire did not fall into that category. She folded her hands, thrilled at the grand adventure, as the master of the house squirmed like an inchworm down the rope. Everything was going according to plan, but then something truly horrible happened. Mortimer's feet were hooked above the knot, and he was in the process of lowering his hands one by one, so that he was nearly folded in half. His massive derriere was projecting outward precariously, gravity pulling him down at an angle. He groaned, and then, with a violent wiggle, Millie heard the sound of tearing fabric. She looked up, her eyes quickly scanning the rope for tears. Was Mortimer going to fall to his death? The rope, however, in all its dilapidated glory, looked quite intact. Millie scrunched her face in confusion, but then Mortimer's declaration revealed the source of the tearing. I detect a chill on my hand quarters. Millie looked to where he'd indicated as he continued slithering down the rope. Any civilized lady would have flushed horribly, but Millie wasn't a civilized lady. She had assisted in birthing the property's many ponies. She cleaned toilets, and she assisted in the upkeep of some of the most secret and private tasks of the manor. Instead, she suppressed the urge to giggle, for the tear in Mortimer's suit pants extended from the waistband all the way down the crack and up between his legs. His underwear was stained yellow, and the fabric was unfortunately not quite as discreet and thick as a pair of new underpants might be. Mortimer carried on in his feat of descending the fabric ladder, not in the least inhibited by the unfortunate clothing catastrophe. And then finally, not to mention astonishingly, several moments later, his cap-toe Oxfords hit the ground. 
She watched a wide grin across her freckled face as he straightened his jacket, dusted his lapel, and adjusted his captain's hat. You may be dismissed, Mortimer announced. He then turned and marched toward the gates at the front of the property. Millie chased after him. But, Master Mortimer, your pants! I shall require transportation. Mortimer was deliberating to himself as he moved. If you bend over, everyone will see you're behind. My lack of modesty is something that will conceal me should the pernicious police care to revisit the monstrosity from earlier. Abandoning that line of questioning, Millie changed tactics. Do you want me to have Neville bring the car? Should I come against resistance, I may be required to use my captain's privileges in order to have this correspondence swiftly mailed, post-haste. Or perhaps I can saddle Pepper for you to ride? Mortimer blinked once and turned toward Millie. What in heaven's name are you doing here? I've been here all along. Millie was not affronted by his tone, for Master Mortimer often seemed to be in his own little world. I watched you climb out your window. You are a spy! I was waiting and I saw you. She bunched her fists at her waist. I am not a spy and you know it. Sent by the minx, I imagine, in another attempt to drag me into another den of transgression. Mortimer, you have a massive tear in your pants. Let me get another set for you. Mortimer hesitated for a moment, shocking Millie by actually considering her declaration. Then he nodded. Quite right. Fetch me another set of trousers, will you? Of course, sir. But before she could scurry helpfully away, Mortimer hissed in her direction. This mission is to be clandestine. Millie let out a whoop and changed trajectories so that she could enter the side of the house. She suspected that Mrs. Dixon was with Miss Longhorn in the sitting room and Mrs. Peabody in the kitchen. The servant's entrance was quite a length out of the way, but it was the best option to ensure no one saw her. As she scurried away, she did not see Mortimer as he turned and lumbered precariously away from the house and out through the gate. Percy stood by his father, staring into the open door of the fairground outhouse. You want the poop? I want it, Jeb confirmed. Oh, how do you reckon we get it out of there? Buckets, of course. How else? Jeb looked at his son. Sometimes he wished Percy was a bit more intelligent. Oh, buckets, right. Percy nodded. Then he looked up at his father. Is it legal to steal shit from the outhouses? We're doing the city a favor, is how I see it. Jeb put his hands in the front pockets of his pants. Saves them the trouble of doing it themselves. True, Percy agreed. And you'll dump it on the fields? Yeah. It's a sacred recipe, though. So don't tell no one. Percy wrinkled his freckled nose. Smells pretty pungent. Then he grinned. Mama's gonna lose it. Mama ain't gonna find out about it, Jeb corrected. I told you, this is man's secret, man's oath. What's an oath? It's some ancient word means you don't tell someone else's secrets or suffer penalty of death. Really? Death? Yep, man's oath, Jeb confirmed. 
so I don't reckon you'd want to break that. No, sir. Jeb inhaled the smell of shit with pleasure. His idea was brilliant, beyond brilliant, in fact. He just wasn't sure why no one had thought of it before. He was going to corner the market on fertilizer. It was much more natural to use human waste than waste from an animal anyway. How disgusting was that, eating vegetables and smoking tobacco fertilized with cow crap? He nodded with satisfaction. We start tonight. We're filling buckets with poop in the dark. His son did not share his enthusiasm. What if we fall in? Well, I don't know how deep that hole is. If you fall in, you're liable to drown, Jeb said truthfully. So be careful. Percy felt a sick feeling in the pit of his stomach. And anybody else coming to help? Nope. Okay. Jeb put his arm over his son's shoulders. Percy, he said. I'd say we've come across a top dollar idea. If everything pans out like I figure, we'll be rich men by next season. His pudgy thumb penetrated the air as his other hand vigorously jerked his trousers into their proper position. He wiggled his hindquarters back and forth with effort and snorted in derision. His objective for modesty was turning out to be an impossible feat, for due to his triumphant descent from the window of his mansion quarters, Mortimer's breeches had split quite effectively wide open, and nothing he was doing could rectify the unfortunate situation. Thumb still signalling, he craned his neck back and peeped at the situation behind him. A sense of calm washed over him as he saw that the perspective was not entirely dismal. For between his modest and quite well-articulated person and the world remained a protective layer of linen. Of course, this was nothing compared to his preferred masterly maintained slacks covering his derriere with a fastidiously austere efficiency that Mortimer found to be essential in every person of good integrity and class. But happily, beneath the tears in this rich fabric remained a protective, albeit yellow-stained, faded, and worn-through pair of quite sensible undershorts. They will do just fine, decided Mortimer with a twitch of his moustache. Besides, there were more important, urgent matters afoot, and time was of the essence. A little tear in Mortimer's breeches would not cause him to forfeit justice. Mortimer abandoned the self-indulgent groping about his rumpus and instead focused on the task at hand, getting a ride into town. He knew that his feet could not tolerate such a walk. The last time he'd attempted to venture on foot downtown, his legs, ankles and feet had swollen up into the shape of giant sausages. So he puffed out his chest and held his pudgy thumb high. An obstinate vehicle zipped by, paying no notice of his impressive display of hitchhiking skill. "'You hogwashed, insipid braggart!' Mortimer shrieked into the dust, which was kicked up by the passerby's tires. Dismayed, Mortimer looked at his thumb. He had read quite thoroughly about the act he was sure that he was doing properly. He considered giving it a try with the other thumb, for another vehicle had appeared on top of the hill in the distance. But he quickly vetoed this option, for there was not much time, and if, perhaps, the thumb method was indeed a fallacy concocted by some histrionic lunatic, Mortimer may never make it to the post on time. Desperate times called for desperate measures. 
There was one other way to flag a ride that Mortimer had read about. Reluctantly, he stepped up to the edge of the street. It pains me in my very essence to engage in such behaviour, he grumbled, shifting his massive weight around on the gravel dirt. I surely must see an analyst, for I believe I am entering a stage of psychological regression to even be contemplating what it is I am about to do. The car was coming closer. With all the skill of a rogue hitchhiker, Mortimer pulled up his pant leg and shot out a pale, ashen, massive, hairy leg. He plastered a maniacal smile to his face, causing his black moustache to twist up unnaturally while he waved frantically with his free hand. The car swerved in an attempt to dodge Mortimer's flaccid appendage, and after several overcorrections, it screeched to a halt. Victory assailed by appealing to the over-centralized churn in society, Mortimer declared. Then his effect shifted quite suddenly and unnaturally as he stuck his pointer finger into the air. A pox to my success, however, for stooping to such degradingly low levels. What is a pox? The woman in the passenger seat looked at her companion in confusion. Hey, Mort, you in some sort of trouble again? It was Herbert, Mortimer's official arch-nemesis. Oh, dear, the blonde's blue eyes widened in concern. He looks like he's been assaulted. Dear sir, do you need a ride? Assaulted? Baby, he about killed us. To the post! Mortimer ignored Herbert's protests and helped himself into the back seat of the car. Herbert shot the blonde a look. His mansion is just over there. I'm sure he can find his way home. His mansion? Herbert winced at the obvious interest. He also did not miss how she now eyed the imbecile in the back seat with curiosity. Herbert made a quick recovery. So, Mort! Herbert pulled a cigarette from his lapel pocket and lit it with a match. What's got you in so desperate a situation that you expose yourself like a wanton mistress on the side of the road? He grinned, took a drag on the cigarette and waited for the blockhead's inevitable embarrassment. Quite improper, if you ask me. But instead of responding with the appropriate indignation, embarrassment and horror, Mortimer adjusted himself in the back seat and looked at his pocket watch before letting out an impatient, huh. He appeared to be quite rudely ignoring Herbert, which made the blonde laugh aloud. Oh, come on, Herbie! I think he's awfully funny! <laughs> Herbert suppressed the desire to strangle his backseat passenger, and instead puffed more violently on his cigarette. He was being forced to go for the low blow. You wouldn't feel that way if you knew him a bit better, baby. Especially... Herbert cleared his voice for emphasis. Knowing that this funny guy spent the better half of the morning behind bars, the blonde's jaw dropped. Jail? Is there something compromising this vehicle's ability to drive? Mortimer finally bellowed, feeling that he'd been patient for quite long enough. That's right, my dear Helen. Herbert cringed against Mortimer's voluminous baritone. What we have here is a bona fide Fallon. Oh, dear! I must be home in time for dinner with my nanny, Mortimer romped Herbert on the shoulder, much the same way as he did with Neville. And do not take wayward, it quite affects my digestion. His nanny? Helen's countenance softened. He wants to have dinner with his dear nanny. She smiled back at Mortimer, 
before placing a hand on Herbert's. He can't be that bad. What kind of a criminal wants to have dinner with their nanny? She batted her eyelids at Herbert. Come now, let's take the deer into town. What was it with Mortimer and these women? Herbert clenched his jaw and threw the spent cigarette butt into the road. The salvation from society's moral degradation is at the mercy of the correspondence that lies between my breast and my lapel, Mortimer announced. Your lollygagging may very well have cost twenty lives at least. Helen nodded in agreement, though it was unlikely that she had any idea what their passenger was talking about. Town's where we're headed anyway, darling, she said. In another two minutes I shall be forced to write another letter to the President, informing him of the misfortune that could have been prevented by a moral and upstanding citizen who instead scratched his behind like a yielding marsupial. Marsupial? Eh? Helen giggled. Isn't he just a gag? Mortimer, Herbert twisted to glare at the beast in the back seat. Shut your mouth. Before Mortimer could go on, Helen interjected. Now, Herbert, he's had a stressful day. Do drive on. Aghast, Herbert looked from Helen to the interloping halfwit. Mortimer lifted his pocket watch and held it in the air in front of Herbert's face. He swung it back and forth, back and forth. Fine, Herbert finally burst out. I'll take you to town, but I don't want to hear another peep from you the whole way there. He shifted the car into drive, and Helen snuggled against him on the car's bench and patted his arm. That's lovely, darling. Quite kind of you. Perfect, Herbert groaned. Just perfect. The tires on the Ford spun, kicking up dust as Herbert punched the accelerator and drove away. Mortimer stood on the side of the road, coughing in a cloud. Downtown Georgetown was quite crowded, and Mortimer cringed at all the unwanted brushes and touches that he acquired as people pushed past him on the small sidewalk. He grimaced and straightened his jacket, making another attempt to conceal the massive rip in his breeches. It was quite a distance from the end of town that he demanded. Herbert, in one of his typical moments of oppressive tyranny, had dumped him on the corner of one of the busiest streets in the city. But there was not time to waste— for the post was due to close within the hour, and so, with a sniff, Mortimer turned on his heel and headed south. The weather was fine, and as a result, most of the city's patrons had left work for the day and instead now appeared to be intentionally plaguing Mortimer with their presence out and about in the city. Foghorns bellowed from the bay, which was less than a mile down the road. The clip-clop sound from the horses' hooves were buried in the roar of the engines from the increasing number of cars that filled up the town square. Mortimer adjusted his captain's hat, and, ignoring the looks from the passerby, he shuffled rapidly toward the post. Paying no attention to the looks that his compatriot shot him, Mortimer moved briskly, enjoying the lovely cooling system that his disarticulated britches offered him. He'd been quite busy as of late, and was nearly finished crafting his ship. Despite the unwanted inconvenience of exercise, Mortimer had to admit that this walk offered him time to think and to plan. Thanks to a stroke of brilliance in People's Store, an exceedingly enlightening voyage into the depths of the sea, and the successful destruction of the sequoia tree, Mortimer had all but completed the design of the Esquire. There was only one small part left to do, and that would require him to actually venture aboard her. 
Mortimer shivered despite the warm summer air. Her mistress was leaving in just under one week, specifically on Friday, according to the flyer that Mortimer had acquired that morning. However, he'd still not gone any closer than passing by once or twice on the dock. This was, in part, due to timidity and reverence for her sensuality and need for space, but also admittedly due to his reluctance to participate in any social activities whatsoever, especially including public tours. Together, those two factors had rendered it impossible for him to see Her Majesty close up. There had to be another way, a way of seeing what he needed to see while avoiding the inevitable torture and humiliation that would accompany a public showing. There was a shriek to the right, and Mortimer's beady eyes shifted to see the doors of the Catholic school burst open. Children were lined up in neat little rows, and parents flocked from all directions to retrieve their little deviants. Mortimer hastened his step. Sweat pooled on his brow, and his rolls of fat jiggled to and fro as he waddled faster. He yanked out his pocket watch, which read 3.55. He turned a corner, and with relief, he saw his destination in the distance. The post was a quaint one-story building, crafted out of mahogany bricks. A flag of the United States had been erected in the landscaped boulevard, and a sign hung in the window that read, Welcome. With a sweaty, greasy hand, Mortimer pushed the door open and was greeted at the sound of bells, which hung from the doorknob. Mortimer stepped inside. Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars Written by M.W. Cedars, the author's pseudonym Audiobook performance by Michael Drew Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.